So as you just heard, we are going to be spending some time in Mark chapter 4. So if you do have your Bible still open, and I hope you do, please turn to Mark chapter 4. Keep your finger in there. So this morning we will be looking at the parable known as the parable of the sower. You may remember if you were with us a couple of weeks back, we spent some time looking at the first chapter of Jonah when we considered the message that this Old Testament prophet was told to go and give to the Ninevites some 2,700 years ago. And as we did that, you may remember, we asked ourselves two very important questions. One, does God have a message for us as Christians to share with people today? And two, who is that message for? My hope is that the answer to those two questions are clear. Yes, we have a message, the wonderful gospel message, the good news of salvation in which sinners can be completely forgiven and reconciled to God the Father through his Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith. The second question that we considered, who is the message for? As humans, we do not know who the elect are, which motivates our evangelism to be towards everyone. Sinners just like me and you, and if left to be judged on our own account, will be found guilty and destined for an eternity in hell. A message of hope and assurance for those truly in Christ, and a serious warning for those who are not. If we are clear on what our message is, the gospel, and if we are clear on who our audience for that message is, sinners, so everyone, then the next thing that will be helpful for us to consider is what does the Bible tell us about how people are going to react to this message? Lord willing, we are planning as a church to speak to thousands of people here in Eastbourne, hopefully everyone. So how can we expect people to respond? Our passage today in Mark chapter 4 is often seen as the go-to chapter in evangelism. A series of parables taught by Jesus designed to give his disciples a great insight into the whole supernatural dynamic of evangelism and salvation and as always it's so important to know and understand the context of our passage this morning so let's just do that chapter four takes us to a time where Jesus and his disciples are two years into their public ministry the disciples had gone on gone all in to follow Jesus up to this point they had left their extended families friends homes jobs Everything they had to follow this man they believed to be the long-awaited Messiah. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. And by this time, the results of the evangelism and teaching were beginning to create some confusion within the camp. Rather than a national revival, the disciples were experiencing strong opposition. The Jewish leaders disliked Jesus and what he was teaching, whilst many of those in the crowd were just turning up to experience the signs and wonders few were repenting and becoming true followers in luke chapter 13 verse 23 you may recall one of the disciples asking lord are there just a few being saved this isn't the scenario that they were expecting when they set off two years ago and this may not sound much different to what we have experienced in our christian lives today john MacArthur writes in his commentary on mark one can imagine that the disciples were beginning to entertain the idea that perhaps this message from Jesus should be altered, even if just slightly, to help manip manipulate 
the people's response. A message of faith and repentance wasn't particularly popular back then, and it isn't popular today. Hence the arrival of the seeker-sensitive movement that is popular across our land and much of the world. A watered-down gospel message which is of no gospel at all. No mention of sin, judgment or hell in response to pragmatism and a drive to entertain people into the kingdom of God. And the end result is exactly the same. Few people are repenting and becoming true followers. When these crucial details are left out of any gospel presentation, how can we expect people to understand just how good the good news of the gospel is when they firstly do not understand just how bad the bad news is? It would be the equivalent of me going up to someone that considers themselves to be completely healthy and telling them that they were in need to urgently go and seek a doctor. Without the bad news... Without this person knowing that they are in perilous danger and as sick as they can possibly be, how will they have any motivation to pay attention to a word that I am saying? Telling people that they can add a little bit of Jesus to their life and he will solve all of their problems may well be an easier product to sell in the flesh. But as we will see in detail this morning, evangelism has nothing to do with the flesh and everything to do with God. As we see from our passage, Jesus had no problem drawing a large crowd. He went from place to place, and the crowds were sometimes huge, numbering upwards of 10,000 people. And often, Jesus would have to get into a boat and gently push away into the shallow sea so that he could pull back slightly from this crowd of miracle seekers, just like our text this morning, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And then in verse 3, we read, Listen, behold, A sower went out to sow. The sower in our parable is God. The seed represents the gospel and the different types of soil are the different types of responses to this gospel message. And the means in which God proclaims the gospel is through us, Christians. Now, before we move on, if you have a study Bible in your hands right now, it's likely that there will be some different answers to who the sower is across your various footnotes. I noticed this in my own study Bibles this week, that some say that God is the sower, and some say it's the evangelist. But there isn't a tension between these two truths. God is the sower, and we as Christians are the human tool being used by our sovereign God so that we can confidently say amen to both. An illustration to hopefully help make this point. If I were to write one of you a letter using a pen as my tool, The letter was written by both me and the pen. Both are true. In our parable this morning, we read, don't we, that there are these four different outcomes to someone hearing the gospel. The first three may seem a little bit negative, but I would encourage us not to read it like that at all. God knows exactly what he is doing, and he is in complete control of his harvest. By God's design, The gospel message in a supernatural way is still being used to save people today. We may ask ourselves, how can it be that the same gospel message presented exactly the same way to two different people will produce two extremely different results? In our parable, we are subtly tuned into the fact that it has nothing to do with the evangelist and everything to do with the Lord. We remember that in our natural state, 
No one seeks after God. For the person we are sharing the gospel with to respond in the way that we are hoping and praying they will is dependent on something way above anything that we're capable of producing in the flesh. They need their heart of stone to be ripped out and to be replaced with a heart of flesh. We need this spiritually dead person to be raised to life. We need the scales from their eyes to be removed and for them to be given ears to hear. They need to be good soil. Ultimately, they need to be born again. And for these things to happen is an act of grace and mercy from our sovereign God. And for those here this morning in Christ, this is our testimony, right? Just as we exclusively rely on Christ for our salvation, we continue to rely on his utter grace and mercy to maintain our faith, to sustain us, and to keep us in him. It would be foolish of us to think that we can ever graduate away from the utter dependency on him in every aspect of our lives. That dependence on our Lord for our sanctification is the exact same dependence that we must rely on as we take to the streets. Any evangelistic fruit that is grown is because of him and for his glory. The gospel is the message and it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is in the working of the Holy Spirit, not in the skill, personality or the charm of the messenger. We may think back to what was probably an unenthusiastic, half-hearted, grumpy message from Jonah, and yet we saw how God used that. Let us remember what Jesus told Simon Peter, I will build my church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Paul reminds his readers, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, what an exciting and frankly reassuring reminder that we don't build the church and then hand it over to Jesus when we think that we've done a good enough job. God is in control of every single detail and Christ is at the right hand of the Father right now, sovereign over all. The amazing reality of its truth is that he knows each and every one of us by name. And he has set it up that those that are Christians here this morning are to be the tools in which he is building his church. It's absolutely remarkable. So what are these soils in our parable and what does this tell us about how people are going to react? So let's go to verse 14. Here is Jesus teaching his disciples about the first soil. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, and when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, living in Eastbourne, it's quite likely that you have walked along the seafront eating some fish and chips. With, within seconds, you may have experienced a group of seagulls just casually waiting for you to make one wrong slip with your chip fork before they pounce on that fallen chip quicker than you can imagine. In fact, in Eastbourne, some seagulls are not quite so polite and will just fancy their chances in flying past you and grabbing a load of your chips anyway. And here, we see it in our parable this morning, no sooner has the seed been sown has the gospel message been delivered to the ears of an unbeliever 
than for Satan to immediately come and take away the word that is sown. Now, the means and schemes in which Satan can do this are many. Maybe he plays to the hearer's pride for which it sounds foolish and offensive that he be called a sinner in need of a saviour. Maybe he wrongly impresses upon the hearer that they've been far too bad to possibly have any chance of being forgiven. Whatever his means, he will not need to try very hard because without God being directly involved in bringing this spiritually dead person to life, man's heart is naturally bent away from God. We think of Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This first soil is a hard heart, an outright instant rejection of the good news. And if you're the person sharing the gospel with this outcome, this may be really disappointing or discouraging. But when we take our example from the apostles, we are to simply move on and go and share it again with someone else. Of course, we have an enemy that will love nothing more than to sow doubt, to take away our confidence or to replay conversations, making us think about all of the things that we could have said better. But brothers and sisters, we are to be encouraged. It is God that is in control. And then in verses 16 and 17, we have our second soil. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while. But then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Now, I'm no farmer, yet even I know that it's not ideal to try and grow crops on rock. Rocky soil is not the friend of young seed trying to anchor its roots into the ground. This parable is talking about someone that responds to the gospel message with enthusiasm, with joy. But then when trials or persecution come to test their faith, they will fall away. And this is such a helpful warning for us to be cautious in the excitement of evangelism. Because you can just picture the scene, can't you? Here we are as a church, excited about getting out there to the highways and hedges to share the gospel. And as we speak with someone, we may see an initial enthusiastic response. Maybe even a commitment that this person wants to become a Christian. They may even come here to be a part of our church for a while. But what does the Bible say? When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. An example of this, if you've been around for long enough, and I've read about this, you will remember the popular stadium event missions that it wouldn't have been uncommon to have thousands of people come forward to make a decision. But yet, when persecution or tribulation comes, some of these people will have fallen away. In fact, I was only speaking with someone last week when they were telling me about how they became a Christian at one of these big events. And They were there with a friend from college and after being stirred up by the emotional worship and rousing preaching, this person and their friend both decided to go forward and give their lives to Christ. The following morning, this person woke up really excited about their new life as a Christian and was eager to find a church that they could both go to. 
Moments later, the friend who also went forward the night before phoned the new Christian and immediately said, wow, that was weird last night. How embarrassing. Make sure you don't tell anyone. Some of those people will be like the people in our second soil this morning. False converts. People that were never actually saved in the first place. This type of soil showed great enthusiasm, great promise, great excitement, but yet they fell away. And before we move on, maybe that's someone listening right now. When you became a Christian, maybe you received the gospel with joy, enthusiastic and seemingly full of life. But as the days, the weeks and the months went by, you have found little evidence of being born again. Little evidence of a hatred of your own sin. No evidence of a new will, a new heart, or a new identity in Christ. If that is you, then I plead with you, hear the gospel afresh this morning. Hear the voice of our Lord calling you to repentance, to turn away from your reliance on self, and instead throw yourself upon our Lord's grace and mercy this morning. And then in verse 18, we have the third kind of soil which is thorny. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is what happens when someone's heart, their mind, and their desires are invested in the things of the world. A heart that is caught up between the temporary, the earthly pleasures, and those in which are eternal. Having one foot in both camps is a tactic that many have played, confident enough in their wisdom that they will know the signs if they become a little bit too worldly-minded. But the pull of the world is too much. Now, the first three soils proving unfruitful, and if we didn't know any better... This could all read like an absolutely huge disaster. But let's not lose hope. But before we do move on to the fourth soil in our parable, it is worth noting that just because someone has proved to be bad soil previously, it absolutely does not mean that they will remain that soil for the rest of their life. We will all, I'm sure, know countless stories of people coming to faith after years of rejecting the gospel, myself included being one of those. It is all a matter of God's perfect timing and God's amazing grace. It is likely that you have loved ones, friends and family members that are unsaved. You may have explained the gospel to them countless times before, yet the seed has fallen on unfruitful soil. Yet there is still hope through Christ. God is in the business of saving sinners and no one is out of the reach of his abundant grace. So now we come onto our fourth soil. The type of soil that we long for. The type of soil that we have been praying for. From verse 8. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold and 100-fold. Isn't that incredible the same means of evangelism it's the same seed the same gospel and yet a seed that gets stolen by satan 
scorched by the sun or choked out by thorns, can and will be used by the Lord to yield a crop of thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Now, this week I've read in commentaries that a tenfold crop would have been regarded as a bumper crop, but to speak of a thirtyfold, sixtyfold, or a hundredfold crop would have been seen as miraculous by his disciples. And that's exactly the point. The salvation of sinners is miraculous. Many of you sitting here this morning will have achieved many marvellous things. I'm sure of that. Things that you are proud of and cherish. But what can possibly be more rewarding and eternally satisfying than to be used by the Lord in welcoming in 30, 60 or 100 new Christians into the kingdom of God? What a generous kindness from the Lord to allow us to be used in his work. And how? How do we become used by the Lord to yield a crop? We obediently, we faithfully make ourselves available to the King of Kings, the Lord of the harvest, by going out and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, when preaching from Mark 4, said, How do we consider the rise and progress of the word of God in the heart? It enters the soul and it roots itself yet. We know not how. Naturally, men hate the word, but it enters and it changes the heart so that they come to love it, but yet we know not how. Their whole nature is renewed so that instead of producing sin, it yields repentance, faith, and love. But yet, we know not how, and how it is that the Spirit of God deals with the mind of man how he creates the new heart and the right spirit, we cannot tell. And finally, as we come to a close this morning, over the last couple of messages, we have asked ourselves three questions. Do we have a message? Who is it for? And how can we expect people to respond? Now lastly, if our Lord is willing and he blesses our evangelistic efforts, and if he chooses to bring new people into our church, then how should we steward that? Well, there is a role for everyone, from the youngest to the eldest. Every single one of us can be used by the Lord. We need to all ensure that we are creating a suitable environment that is honouring to the Lord in every aspect of our church life. From being a praying church, our welcome, and of course our discipleship in helping new believers grow in their understanding, their knowledge and their love for the Lord, whether that be from the pulpit, through Bible study or through Christian fellowship. We all need to ensure that we are doing all we can to steward any blessings that the Lord gives us to his glory. And what a joy that God, our Heavenly Father, the sovereign creator of this universe, has designed it so that the existing recipients of his grace are to be his messengers. That we have the incredible privilege to be used as tools in his hand to always be ready and prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for the opportunity for us to study your word as we come together to worship you, our amazing God. What an incredible comfort it is to know that you, the creator of our universe, are in charge of all things, that you alone are in control of the evangelism through this church, and that you are so kind in allowing us to be involved in this great work. And we ask you afresh this morning, Father, that if it would please you to give us much good soil in Eastbourne, that you will give us your heart for evangelism, that you equip us, enable us and encourage us to be faithful for what you have called each and every one of us to do here this morning. Father, we ask for your protection and for your wisdom and for your heart in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 